Wild Common Podcast. This podcast is funded and supported by Wild Common, an additive-free agave spirits company bringing you some of the finest tequila and mezcal on earth. Our goal is to help give transparency to the consumer, provide a cleaner spirit, and support sustainable methods of production with the families that we work with in Mexico. Our products should be available summer 2020. We will keep you posted. Salud. Welcome to another episode of the Wild Common Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Barden, founder of Wild Common Agave Spirits, and today's guest is Clayton Check. Equal parts scholar, evangelist, and total nerd, Clayton is a full-time agave spirits culture specialist who believes that agave spirits should be sipped and savored, their history and culture absorbed and appreciated, and their regions of origin explored. And he's done just that. He moved to Mexico many years ago, and that ideology led him to create a new category of agave spirits tourism in Mexico. It began as an affinity for the Spanish language and developed into an active exploration of culture, where he discovered that agave spirits are not just a beverage, but a place, history, and a tradition. Clayton is proud to be a global interpreter of and voice for agave spirits, and he's certified as an experto in tequila and the only non-Mexican national to earn one of the Tequila Regulatory Council's prestigious double T certification. Pre-COVID, he spent his time traveling the world, speaking about agave spirits, consulting, or serving as a tasting judge for spirits festivals. Clayton was the founder of a tasting room and bar in downtown Tequila, Mexico called La Cata, and has also used his experience in collaboration with local producers to make really, really fine, small batch, single barrel, aged expressions. We get a little geeky on this one about agave spirits for sure, but we also dive into culture, equitable wages, and sustainability. I hope you enjoy this far-ranging conversation with agave expert Clayton Check. All right, well, Clayton Check, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, I uh, got a message from you that you drove through the night from Mexico City to the town of Tequila. Um, can you talk about that? Uh, yeah, I've been in quarantine in my apartment in downtown Mexico City since around March 16th, um, which is also the day we decided we were going to close La Cata in Tequila, at that point temporarily. Um, and downtown Mexico City, right in the historic heart of the city, is a wonderful place to live. I, I love it. I love being right in the in the thick of things and the hustle and bustle. But uh, when you're trying to avoid crowds and uh, social proximity, it is not the the greatest place to do that. So I've been locked down pretty hard, and you know, eating very well and getting a lot of good reading in. But I have been pretty antsy to to get out in the last few days. And now, uh, you know, sadly, it's time to roll things up here at Lakata. So um, just decided to do the the overnight drive, avoid any traffic, avoid um, you know, just make make good time and get here and get a good start on the day. Good deal. Well, um, I saw for a couple of years anyway, um, or for over a year, uh, images kept popping up and there'd be gatherings at this uh, place in Tequila Town called La Cata. And, you know, some of the biggest uh, names in the industry were showing up. Can you talk a bit about the project that you started down there and uh, and sort of the motivations behind it? And then we can get a little bit more into your backstory from there. Yeah, for sure. So um, I started coming to the town of Tequila as a visitor 
think the first time was in 2007. Um, and then I started coming with the explicit premise of, of uh, bringing tour groups in 2008 and then brought my first group in 2009. And, you know, I, I, I know now that I'm very much typical for foreigners or, or any outsider, really, in thinking that when you come to tequila – you would have this opportunity to try, you know, all of the tequilas or at least like a huge variety that you, you couldn't get anywhere else or couldn't get at home. And so like a lot of visitors, I was pretty puzzled when, when I first started coming and found that there were really only a small handful of brands here. Um, and, you know, pretty much nothing I had never encountered before. And as I slowly built this, this tour project, uh, just sort of assumed that, you know, there were big players in the industry also investing heavily in tourism. And I just assumed that, you know, a real tequila bar would, would be something that would, uh, just kind of be a no brainer. And year after year, it just, it never happened. And then, uh, partially because Jose Cuervo opened a really nice five-star hotel right in the center of town, um, and I had some people around me business-wise who I thought would be uh, good partners um, and, and were good partners. We decided to open the first real tequila bar in the town of Tequila um, and started that project about three and a half years ago. And um, with, the, with the premise of sort of being the industry's living room and being a place that represented the category of 100% agave tequila and to a lesser extent other agave spirits without uh, loyalties to brand and even without loyalties to particular processes, leaving our personal preferences at the door and really objectively presenting all the representatives of the category and, and letting the guests make their own decisions. And you know, I can say on, on behalf of somebody who's been through the doors and sat at that bar, you know, you could transport that uh, joint to San Francisco, to Mexico City, to Ontario, to New York. And when people walk in, they would be blown away. I mean, the execution I, I felt was so well done, uh, like everything you seem to do. You know, no detail was left um, untended to. And, you know, the customer service was incredible. The selection was amazing. The cocktails were great. I mean, it's one of the best experiences I've had in a tequila bar. Thank you. Thank you, man. I mean, that's, that's real, that's an honor to hear and, and really part and parcel of, of our goal, which, which was to elevate everything that's local, uh, in an environment that just, as you say, could stand up to, you know, any bar hospitality wise, cocktail wise, um, design wise, uh, in, in the world. Um, and, you know, I, lo I owe most of that to my partners, uh, Tommy Cluse and, and Devlin McGill, my operational partners who have owned and operated bars in the Pacific Northwest for years. Um, and to our interior designer, uh, who's from Guadalajara, Deborah Heftier, who did a great job of making concrete our more abstract visions, um, sort of of a polished, rustic feel. And to our GM, who, who I know you met, Isis Hernandez, who was really the, the heart and soul of the project from, from day one and made sure that that hospitality piece was was just top notch and and so where did where did all this stem from i mean you talk about you know 25 years of immersion a, a total passion for sharing the culture um where did this passion for mexican culture come from well, it, it goes back to, to where I grew up. Um, I, I grew up in the Central Valley of California in, in the town of Bakersfield, which, you know, I'll pause for people to make their own jokes or, or, or insert their, their own judgments there. Um, you know, it's, it's a town that 
if if you're not from California, uh, probably defies most of the stereotypes you have about California. Um, you know, p- people will call it the Oklahoma of, of California. You know, it's it's oil and, and farming and football. And um, when I was growing up, I was you know found myself very much opposed to sort of the dominant white culture. You know, I'm having you know white family background and was very much opposed to sort of the predominant racism and xenophobia and conformity that I found all around me there. And, you know, was involved in subcultures sort of as a way to find an outlet and and a way to seek out other like-minded people. And there was always kind of this, this other, you know, and I think Bakersfield's a lot more diverse now than it, than it was then. But, you know, in my world, it seemed like it was about, you know, half white and, and and, and half Latino, predominantly Mexican. And that was, it was very de facto segregated at the time. I lived in a very, very white working class part of town. Um, and so it, it was just something that was out there and other, uh, to me, of course, it's, it's, uh, to people growing up there, it was just as normal to them as, as where I was, uh, was normal as, you know, my background was to me, but to me, it was, it was, it offered a view into another world. And I was always a, a real nerd and, um, you know, very studious about everything. And then, uh, didn't have the opportunity to study a language until high school, which is a crazy part of our educational system in the United States. But it got into Spanish really, really seriously from ninth grade uh, and, you know, did advanced placement Spanish and came out of high school certified as bilingual by the county and had been participating in the Hispanic Honor Society and multicultural associations and things like that. And really, you know, through a love of learning a language period, learning a foreign language period, and then that language being Spanish and it having this intrinsic connection to this huge world that was at once so close to me, but but felt so far away and so inaccessible. Uh, you know, language was a way into that. I could just walk up to someone at a bus stop, or I could just walk up to somebody at a show, or I could just walk up to somebody at a park and, and talk to them or ask them a question. Um, and it, and it kind of doubled the size of my world. And then uh, my, my senior year in high school, my best friend and I devoured this, this, uh, classic, uh, hippie guidebook called the people's guide to Mexico, which is in its, you know, like 15th printing and started in the seventies. And we just fantasized every day, our senior year of high school about getting to Mexico, uh, and having crazy adventures like the, the people in this book did. And so, uh, the week after we graduated from high school, we, we drove down to the border, uh, parked his car at a friend's house and walked across at San Isidro with big backpacks. Uh, and we had our own machetes and a bunch of camping gear we'd never end up using. Um, and, and we, you know, had a kind of, a somewhat ill-fated, but very comical, um, uh, road trip in, in Mexico that taught us a lot and really planted the, the seed in me of, of a connection to the country that has only intensified over time. And then that, that passion grew and grew to the degree that you formed, uh, a tour group called Experience Agave. Yeah. It, it, you know, there were, there were ebbs and flows over time. I went to college after that and, and my connection with the culture was, you know, geographically distant. I was in Portland, Oregon, but very involved, um, in immigrant rights groups and was doing social work in a immigrant and refugee advocacy organization and involved in the Latino community in, in various capacities, um, over the years. And all that led to various jobs in, in social work and social service and political activism. And around 2006, 
I decided I needed to move to Mexico. Uh, I had not been to Mexico in, in years, um, but that I, I felt I needed to move there to really get my language uh, to a place that I thought it you know really warranted i was working professionally in bilingual environments i was uh you know interpreting for very important legal cases and my spanish was in a certain sense good but um i wasn't living in it you know i wasn't i, I wasn't very uh conversant in in the day-to-day normal things uh, so I moved to Jalapa, Veracruz on the Gulf Coast, and uh, one thing led to another, and, and after a year, I visited the town of Tequila, and from pretty much the day I got here, I felt that uh, there was something really special about this place and its history, and that I wanted to find a way to share it with other people like me who, who came from somewhere else. And then that started your love for agave spirits, not just tequila, but other distillates, uh, Distillados de Agave, um, Mezcal, and, you know, exploring sort of the region of Jalisco in general. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, for sure. That that definitely, you know, uh, came a little later just with the the size of the category um, and the the cultural presence of tequila, uh, tequila had a lot to to teach me for for you know a couple years. Not that you ever get to the end of learning about it, um, but I was I was pretty head over heels with tequila and was aware of other regional traditions and spirits, um, but but didn't prioritize that until a couple years later uh, when I went to Oaxaca for the first time and and around that same time um, through some local bars in Guadalajara started getting exposed to to Recia uh, from from Jalisco as well. And so a number of folks listening um, are getting into tequila. They're not they're not geeks on it. Um, and they don't know the difference between um, you know what is the difference between tequila and mezcal? Um, what is a destilator de agave? Can you explain just a little bit um, as you would on one of your tours, just sort of break that down? Yeah. Yeah, sure. It's it's become a little bit, you know, unfortunately difficult, more difficult than it should be. But uh, there's there's a couple different ways to look at it, and and I like to start with the the oldest way, the kind of the fundamental or traditional definition, which is that all Mexican agave spirits are mezcals in one sense or another. And that because of Mexico's intense linguistic and ethnic diversity, uh, there are different words used to talk about those agave spirits, but that in this day and age, uh, most of those folks would also understand, oh, well, you call this mezcal. And tequila was no exception. Tequila was born as a mezcal uh, made with the agave endemic to this region, the Tequila Valley, and over time uh, developed a tradition, a regional tradition strong enough, and its process started to diverge enough, and the political interests were strong enough that it started becoming known simply as tequila rather than mezcal de tequila uh, in the early part of the 20th century, and then in 1974 declared itself uh, uh, denomination of origin, and in 1994, really put together the system that we that we have today that that regulates tequila. So, tequila historically is a regional mezcal that, over the course of the last century, uh, has has diverged and is now formally, politically, and technically mutually exclusive from from other mezcals. Um, that should leave you know the rest of of Mexico's agave spirits as mezcal, but. Uh, Certain sectors of of the mezcal producing uh, world saw the commercial success of the tequila denomination of origin after 1994, and in 1997 began to create the mezcal denomination of origin, which today includes nine states, um, meaning that it excludes uh, at least as many states uh, that 
produce mezcal traditionally, but now can't use that term commercially. So uh, that means that mezcal technically, legally, is an agave spirit from the regions of those nine states comprised in the mezcal denomination of origin and produced according to their rules under the supervision of the Mezcal Regulatory Commission, which leaves us with everything that falls outside of that system. And there are a couple of other denominations of origin in in Mexico for spirits as well. But the spirits that either fall outside of those denominations of origin geographically or for one reason or another, the producers can't or opt not to participate in those regulatory systems. Uh, These are now technically known as agave spirits, agave distillates, destilados de agave. Um, Pretty much all of them traditionally would be considered mezcal. And let's talk about, I mean, the choice to opt not to. I mean, there are a number of communities, um, you know, villages that are producing as their full-time source of income. And then there are other people that produce two or three batches per year, say 50 to 100 liters, um, and they're making it for their friends and family, and they have zero interest in commercializing what they see as just a cultural tradition. Um, So they choose not to spend the money to register it with the government to get a label that says it's X, Y, and Z, Mezcal, um, and export it. And they're happy enough with that. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that's that's one of a number of reasons you know folks might choose not to participate in the system or or be de facto excluded from the system. Um, in addition to it just being a choice, there are very traditional processes that will create a spirit that's been consumed for a century, two centuries, three centuries, maybe longer. Uh, that won't pass the muster uh, in terms of certain physiochemical parameters that are perfectly safe to drink and would actually be perfectly safe to be certified in in Europe, for example, um, but can actually get certified as mescal. So some of the most traditional processes are de facto excluded from being certified as mescal. And as you mentioned, this is not only something that's that's just traditional for many people, but it's it's part of a, an annual agricultural cycle. Um, so when when the season is dry is when you're harvesting agave or maguey and distilling mezcal. And then as you're preparing for the rains, you're planting corn, you're planting other traditional crops. And so, you know, historically, agave, agave production and, and mezcal production were just one part of an annual agricultural cycle um, that, as you said, many people uh, with with great success and, and, and in great ways um, have made a full-time occupation from. Um, but other folks still do it just part of as a seasonal cycle of, of more or less um, uh, sustenance agriculture. And, and therein lies a challenge too, right? Where it's, um, these regulatory bodies and these rules have been created to help protect quote, you know, cultural spirits from Mexico. And on the other hand, they don't even acknowledge, um, traditions and spirits that have been around, you know, well before this denomination was created. Yeah, and that really gets to the crux of sort of the the debate about denominations of origin, particularly in in Mexico. Uh, and I would be remiss if I didn't recommend the the best source for this, which is a book by the sociologist Sarah Bowen called "Divided Spirits: uh, Tequila, Mezcal, and the Politics of Production." And um, that will do a great job summarizing the the issues. But if if I take a stab in a nutshell, this this concept of systems of which denomination of origin is one um, are generically known as geographical indications. Um, And 
the concept originally behind them is to protect areas that have a traditional product that take its name from that area and provide a boost to the economy so that people can continue producing this product in the traditional way and have enough economic well-being to participate in a modern economy. Uh, and, And there are places where this seems to be fairly successful. And there are places, arguably like Mexico, where these have become more tools for creating a commercial category that's focused on constantly increasing market share with fairly predictable results where larger, more cap, more highly capitalized, more powerful players are really the ones who reap more of the advantage of this than the smaller producers. And it's, it's certainly more nuanced than that. Um, both in tequila and mezcal, there are small and traditional producers, some of whom I think we're going to talk about, um, who are in the denomination of origin and who it really works for them. And um, it's cert- I certainly wouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater or paint it with too broad of a brush. But that in, in uh, broad strokes is, is really sort of what the, what the ideal is and what the criticism of how this plays out in reality. And, and so that brings up in my mind, um, you know, the, the challenge of scale and um, sustainability. And we could probably talk for days about uh, both, but can you talk a little bit about the sustainability um, efforts being made specifically in the tequila industry? Yeah, sure. I think you know you're right on the money when talking about scale. And at at their, I mean, at their core, any kind of geographical indication, any kind of denomination of origin, implies exclusivity, right? Even if it's to a whole country, but there there are lines drawn around something which in the physical world means there's going to be a limit on, on to how much of this you can make. And certain denominations of origin, if you think of, you know, French cheeses, for example, uh, really embrace that essence of, of it and say, well, we're making a traditional product that, uh, in the international market is going to be a luxury product. And there's, there's going to be a, a premium. There's going to be a value added on this that we, the producers uh, and rural people are going to reap the benefits of. Um, whereas, I think certainly in in the case of tequila, tequila as an industry, not to say there aren't conflicts within it and aren't people uh, fighting for something different, but as an industry, tequila has really opted for this. This is a standard. This DO is a standard we're going to carry as we try to become dominant in a global marketplace and compete against vodkas and gins and American and Canadian whiskeys that – have a scale arguably far beyond what we should be able to do. And so until the Mescal Dio gets created, tequila is geographically the largest Dio in the world. And now it's Mescal and tequila is number two. So you have a real vast territory and the, the challenge or, or the, the possible downside, one of the possible downsides with that is that you have this one crop that now has a value in the global marketplace, whereas other more traditional crops and natural areas where flora and fauna live and congregate and, and provide natural areas that humans like to recreate in, these become less valued. And so in Jalisco, you have deforestation and you have uh decreased biodiversity as blue agave becomes the predominant cash crop. And that means that people are less able to grow their own food. Um, it also means that, you know, uh, 
local and native species are, are threatened or, or becoming extinct. And, you know, it, it's, it's certainly not just agave, not just tequila. Avocados are, are an issue, uh, you know, and there are other cash crops that in a, in a market economy will, will create these kinds of problems. So in, in tequila, I think there, I see the industry is very, very bifurcated at this point. You, you have the majority of the volume of tequila produced being made by very large producers. And to be fair, some, not all, but some of these large producers are on their own initiative and, and pressured by, by the government and other actors, um, taking steps to make sure that the outputs produced uh, in distillation are taken care of and not just released into the environment um, and taking steps to become more green operations and taking steps to have agreements with agave farmers that that uh, recognizes the, the well-being of those farmers as well as the tequila makers. Um, so I certainly don't want to demonize the, the the big guys. There's good stuff happening over there as well. It's, it's uneven, but there are some people doing good things there. And but that's that's the the extreme of the industry where we're talking about uh, millions of cases a year, massive quantities of tequila. If you were to take any bottle of tequila at random from the world, it would predictably be from one of the four big houses. Um, whereas if we look at the world of tequila producers by number of producers, we've got, say, maybe 120 distilleries, and the vast majority of those are small and micro producers. And uh, a, a even smaller sector of them are taking steps to really emphasize small batch production, more traditional methods, and a connection to the the land and the agave and the agave expressing itself in the tequila that comes out as the end product. And so let's let's sort of like dive into that a little bit deeper. I mean, I, I think it's worth mentioning part of the the challenges when you talk about this global scale going up against vodkas and um whiskeys you know and even wines those crops grow every year um whereas from seed to harvest um the blue weber agave is going to take six or eight years and in the case of mezcals um sometimes 12 to 20 years uh for a single harvest and so it just isn't sustainable in my mind at at the global scale um that some people are trying to uh, push it, especially at $24 a bottle or whatever it may be, which brings up this other class in my mind of more traditional um, kind of old school products, more sustainable products. Um, can we just jump into like a little bit about uh, what you mean about these smaller batch distilleries where the, the agave really shines through? Yeah. So there's, there there are products out there where you can really talk about the terroir, uh, terruño, as it's known in Spanish. I'm not good with the with the French pronunciation, but you know this this fancy French word for dirt or earth. And and even though the word comes from the the word for earth, it, it refers to a, a broad set of of factors, both natural and cultural or human, uh, where, so you take the example of wines and, and I don't know very much about wine, so I'll, I'll be very brief with this, but, um, you know, a, 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 a varietal of a say, a, a, a Chardonnay varietal of grape is going to taste different in a certain valley in France than it does in a certain valley in California. And that's due to the climate. It's due to the soil, um, but it's also due to the cultural farming practices of the people there and the cultural practices of when they take that grape and turn it into wine. And there are tequilas that have demonstrated that this is also the case with tequila. However, um, 
people sometimes take this ball and run with it a little too far and say, oh, well, this tequila is from the valley, so it tastes like such and such, or that tequila is from the highlands, so it tastes like this other thing. Um, the, the fact, the sad fact is vanishingly few tequila makers have a reliable, traceable source of agave from a place where they they know they're getting it from consistently to be able to talk about terroir. Um, so most people, even medium and even many small producers, um, especially right now in a time of agave shortage and high prices, are buying agave in the open market from intermediaries, and they might not necessarily know where it's coming from. They might be, you know, kind of just blending together whatever came into the factory that day, um, and there's not necessarily a, a problem with that. Um, but when you combine that, especially when you get into the medium and, and large scale of production, you can then prof- combine that sort of anonymity of the source of the raw material with industrial processes that sort of erase the character of the agave and are producing either a more neutral product or a product that then is going to be more manipulated with with chemicals and additives so that you know they might be claiming, oh, well, this agave is from such and such a place and it's got this elevation and rah, 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 but they might not necessarily know that. And even if it's true, their process might not be natural enough to allow that raw material to really express itself. So in juxtaposition to that, you have these smaller producers who, um, and I think you know, at a minimum, what they have in common is they're they're cooking the they're cooking the agave, they're cooking the agave with with steam, uh, and they are extracting the juice from the cooked agave increasingly with the older school method of a big stone wheel called a toona. Um, their fermentation is is open and while it while they might be using a proprietary yeast, in fact, most of them are. Um, it's going to be otherwise unaided. It's going to be unaided by chemicals or accelerants. Uh, And then their distillation is going to generally be in alembic stills. So that's going to sort of limit the the size of the distillation run and give them... and if, if, if they've got copper stills, then, then so much the better as well. And these are sort of, I, in my consideration, this is very personal, but these are sort of the minimum steps for, for the type of tequila where you're going to have the possibility that the agave is really going to shine through at the end. And so that's uh, uh, using mature, raw, high-quality ingredients, um, a slow process, and a relatively small batch. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and and you, I'm glad you brought me back to to the point. The the, the raw material, the, it being mature, is fundamental, and and I, and I neglected to say that, so thank you. One of the biggest problems we have right now, and it causes problems all up and down the supply chain, is industrial processes that allow for or encourage the early harvest of the agave before it's to a point of biological maturity, before it has the type of biochemical complexity that makes uh, agave spirits the most aromatically complex white spirits in the world. But that's not going to happen if, if your agave ha- doesn't, hasn't had that six, eight, nine, ten 10 years, depending on the species, to develop that biochemical complexity that's going to express itself in a natural process. So yeah, that's, that's fundamental. Um, and then when I say the agave is cooked with steam, um, and again, this is very personal. I'm, I personally do not care for a process that's become more popular in the industry uh, where the raw agave has the carbohydrates hydrolyzed um, in, in a way that's not cooking it. And so you're essentially extracting the, the sugars from the raw agave. And it just results, they can be very well-made spirits from a technical standpoint, uh, but you're never going to have that aroma and flavor of, of raw, of, sorry, of cooked agave, which I think is really the, should be the essence of, of any well-made agave spirit. 
And so when I set out to explore Mexico, we had some friends down in Oaxaca and we uh, went and visited them. They they drove from Colorado, spent six months down there with their kids. Um, you know, we had all sorts of amazing uh, mezcals. And then I went to explore um, Jalisco on my own um, to look for some of the most sustainable distilleries on earth because I really wanted to get to the heart of, you know, who are the families that are making these beautiful spirits without additives? They don't need to conceal these um, chemical processes by adding vanilla number four or uh, yeah. yellow to make it dark. And um, I reached out to a friend of ours, Grover Sansagrin yeah. from um, Tequila Matchmaker. He in turn passed me along um, to another mutual friend of ours named David Suro. Um, and in the process, I was looking at, um, you know, the industry as a whole, as well as sustainability in the industry. And I was uh, putting together a pitch to write an article for a major magazine that's now since on hold because of travel. Um, but the first distillery I went into, you know, these old rusty doors creaked open. And exactly what you said, that cooked agave um, yeah. was the first thing that just like punched me in the face. And you could smell it and the steam's coming out of these old brick ovens. Um and it was like stepping back in time. It was just a romantic experience. Um, and that was the the Cascoine Distillery, who I'm going to be partnering with and working with. Um, and at some point over the last couple of months, they posted something on social media and they said that they created the single batch Reposado um, in collaboration with Lakata. Of course, I got super excited about it. I realized you're behind it. Um, can you jump in a little bit about uh, sort of creating your own expression and and why you chose to work with the Rosales family at Cascoin. Yeah, so so we um, at, at Lakata we started with with this goal of twice a year doing a totally unique and exclusive uh, spirit with a producer that you know we would have exclusivity to. So we we'd work with a tequila uh it was only ever a tequila producer. We thought maybe someday in the future we'd do mezcal. Um but with a with a producer that that we liked and, and we felt we could work with and and do something that we would both enjoy uh and offer that to first to our members in our club uh and then to guests at Lakata and then to a broader public whenever whenever that there was enough. Uh and so we had done, th I think, three other uh, exclusive products like that, and uh, two were single barrels, and and one was a very special blanco that we did. And uh, so we had done an extra añejo single barrel from the Highlands region, which was very limited. It was a, I think, it was an eight-year extra, seven or eight-year extra añejo, um, and so there were only about ninety bottles of that. That was gone very fast. Uh, we did a single barrel añejo from another producing family in a Matitan, where, where Cascoin is, uh, and uh, that sold at a, at a pretty good clip and, and was really popular. And so we we knew that Cascoin, you know, I've uh, been a fan of the juice for a really long time. When, when I first started coming here, as I said, around uh, 2007, uh, there was a local friend of mine who was working as a guide at the time, and, and he was really my first mentor, a guy named David Gonzalez, and, and he was showing me around uh, 
lot of the distilleries in the valley and and Cuscoine was one of the first places uh, he took me and he was like you know this is a very popular local tequila um, people like it because it's not expensive and it's really good um, and I you know I'd never seen it anywhere outside of the region that was the kind of stuff I thought I would see in some bar in tequila right um, but you would mostly see it kind of in roadside places uh, and so it was an it was an early favorite um, I didn't meet Salvador until years later uh, until many years later actually but uh, shortly after we met I started bringing uh, tour groups there and was just really impressed as I said I'd always been impressed with the juice but in, in this kind of slow generational transition that's happening between Salvador Sr. and, and uh, Salvador Jr. Chava um, you know Chava is is one of these young I can call him he's he's you know in this industry I'm seen as young sometimes but Chava's younger than I am and and he's someone who's as he slowly takes over the reins, really looking back to the traditions and the origins of tequila, while at the same time having an eye on and a foot in the sort of sophisticated bar world and cocktail world in, in the United States and Europe and understanding in a way that's totally new to the previous generation that actually these rustic processes that uh, – People were kind of eager to rush away from as Mexico developed and wanted to become a, a you know a so-called first-world country. That these are actually the things that people are willing uh, to pay fair prices for and and are really proud to have in their bars all over the world. Uh, and and he he's you know probably you know one of the prime examples of of that kind of figure in the industry. And they've just been knocking it out of the park for the last few years um, in terms of reintroducing reintroducing. Uh, They've never, you know, gone in industrial to, you know, uh, per se. They've never been a large distillery, but reintroducing uh, the tona for for extracting agave juice, um, starting to ferment again with fiber, starting to distill again with fiber, and and produced a series of of blancos, uh, and then, uh, you know, with, with David Suro putting in and, and Emilio Vieira, a mezcalero from Michoacan, putting in an earth oven and and cooking agave underground uh, in the way that mezcal still is, in the way that tequila used to be, uh, you know, 150 years ago uh, for the first time since then. And, and just a real openness to, it's interesting because it's on the one hand innovating, but it's also uh, a return to tradition. Um, and And the results were just amazing as well because just because you you use you know <laughs> tools that that look sexy and, and rustic doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get a really nice uh, spirit out of it and and they just were they were just killing it with, with plata and with taona and with the uh, siembra ancestral uh and then later the aniversario and so we were just really really excited to to see what we could we could do with them um you know both from a personal perspective also from a business perspective you know what what we're doing with these are they're inherently, you know, collectible and, you know, if Cascoine is on everybody's lips and, and they're right down the road and they're friends of ours, well, it's, it's, you know, it certainly helps us if it's not difficult to sell this stuff. So we figured, well, the single barrels, we did a, a much more geeky project with a Blanco uh, with a distillery in the Highlands. Uh, and it, it disappointed me a bit, but I, I, we found that the, the market for, uh, it was it was a, a coupled it was a duo it was a, a two bottles of blanco that was still strength and uh, half of the batch was filtered and half of it was unfiltered so it was an opportunity to talk about this fairly technical process of filtration and the immense impact it can have on on flavor 
and it, it was probably the thing I had been the most excited about, but it, it was it was boring to a lot of people. Um, so we just we realized, you know, single barrels are they're easy to talk about. You know, it's easy to explain. If people know whiskey, they already know what it is. If they don't, you can tell them. Well, look, you know, each each barrel has a uh, unique flavor because you know it came from a different tree. It's been a different uh, part of the stack. It's had different exposure to humidity and airflow. Blah blah blah. So if we taste you know, out of these 50 barrels in this room that from the outside look practically identical, we're going to notice some variations in flavor, some of which are going to be huge and some of which are going to be more subtle. Um, so single barrels are, you know, it's already, it's already done, right? It's already baked. Um, the, the tequila has been made, it's in a barrel. Um, it, it doesn't involve a costly process of, you know, sort of starting from scratch like we did with the Blanco. Um, so, and we hadn't done a Reposado. So, and, and I personally, I drink, 90% of the time I'm drinking unaged agave spirits. Um, and then when I'm not, I'm probably going to the other extreme and drinking extra añejo if it's real cold or, or you know, I'm kind of in that mood to have uh, something uh, quite a bit more oaky. I find reposados to be, in my opinion, the most difficult class of tequila to do really well. Um, you know, they're all about balance, but but the risk is that they can just kind of be men, either here nor there. You know, the agave is a little muted, but the barrel's also a little dilute. Um, so what's the point? And and so it was a, a cool challenge to think of. Uh, let's let's try to do reposado. So I went to to Chava, and and he said, yeah, let's, we we would love to do that. Um, and we came down to three different types of barrels. Uh, a a new well. Tequila generally, not not by by requirement, but generally, uh, the predominant practice is still to aged tequila in used American whiskey barrels. So we had um, one standard Cascoween barrel that was, you know, we would say it's tired. It's been used multiple times. Uh, and then one that was new to them had only had the one previous use for whiskey. Um, and then another one that was that was new, but was specifically a wild turkey bourbon barrel. And that was the first time they had uh, purchased any wild turkey uh, bourbon barrels. So we were like, well, this is, you know, conceptually interesting, three very different things. Let's, let's taste these. We, we, uh, I tasted them with him and, and some of the folks at the distillery there and then took some samples and distributed them to, to my partners and, you know, formed a little panel and, uh, we said, well, they all, they all need a little bit more time. We didn't want them to be too oaky. Uh, but then about a month later, uh, we tried them again and the bourbon, the wild turkey bear, it was ready. Uh, and we were like, take this out right now. Um, because with, with a few more days, this is going to be a little too far, but we feel like, uh, it's practically perfect right now. And, uh, Chavez said, you know, we actually think this is the one as well. And we also think it's ready. The other two could, could use a little more time in the barrel, but this one's definitely ready. Uh, so we pulled that and then without even, uh, asking, he did us the great favor of then, uh, putting, all the reposado into glass carboys and we got a few months of extra resting in glass, um, which is a really nice way to settle and, and mellow out the tequila, which they do for, um, for David Suro's, uh, Valles Ancestral product. Um, and is, is very, uh, typical in, in many mezcal producing regions. Um, and then, sorry, going on and on about this, but uh, part of the original concept too that I thought would be really fun, 
with the previous three products, we had just used the label of, of each of the brands and, you know, slapped a sticker on there that said Lakata exclusive, you know, single barrel, how much time in the barrel or filtered, unfiltered in the case of the Blanco. And with given the, the good, you know, um, the really good relationship we had with Chava and the fact that, um, you know, we had done well selling the previous product, we had a little more money to play with. Uh, so I said, well, what if, what if we did an original label? Um, but I want to use your your Cuernito brand, um, and Cuernito mean literally means little uh, little horn, and it refers to the hollowed out cow horns that were traditionally used to to consume tequila in the fields and in rustic environments in Jalisco. Still used by people, um, still used in in mezcal and southern Jalisco in, in production and in drinking, um, and it's a label they had used for their for their mixto for their non hundred percent agave tequila, which is a very popular local product, and you know asked them for permission to use our designer to sort of spiff up and modernize the uh, design a little bit. And they were very open to it. They were very happy with what came out. We had the same designer, um, a woman named Courtney DeCourt, who did the menus at Lakata as well, um, and just came up with something really cool, really classic looking, and has both Cuernito and Lakata. And it says on there, it's you know made by Cascoline, so everyone who doesn't know who Cuernito is sees where it's coming from. And we're just super happy with with the way it came out. It's it's un, uh, completely undiluted and unfiltered. And you've said a couple of things that I want to no, touch. Hang on, I'm, I'm sorry. It's filtered. It's filtered, but it's undiluted. Uh, you said a couple of things I do want to touch on. First, um, y- you know, you you spoke about the world class sort of cocktail menu and traditional processes, and I feel like more and more people are recognizing that they're not mutually exclusive, and that the most traditional processes with the least amount of additives, the least amount of filtration, make the most beautiful spirits. Would you agree? I think all things being all things being considered, yes, yeah. Like I mean, all things being equal, absolutely. I think you know there, it's it's when you when you have a bar, it's it's really hard to have something expensive in the well. Uh, but I think if you're if you're actually a craft cocktail bar, you definitely don't want the cheapest, most mass produced thing even in your well. And and so as David Suro and and the Rosales family at Cascuine are are chasing some of these. Um, not just artisanal roots, but ancestral roots, meaning this is how tequila was made 150 years ago, cooked in earthen pits. I mean, people are recognizing there's so so many other layers of complexity there, smoke and yeah. um, other flavors of wood. And I, I just think it's really cool to, uh, you know, as we throw back in time, we recognize it also produces a damn good spirit that stands on its own. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, the cocktails are, are for, for better or worse, you know, the United States is a cocktail culture and the United States is the largest market for tequila in the world. And so in the U.S., people get exposed to spirits through cocktails. Um, and, you know, through working with my partners and through, you know, other mentors in the industry, um, I've come to develop an appreciation for cocktails. There's a couple I can even make. Um, but at the end of the day, I'm, I'm a spirits person. I, I like to enjoy the spirit neat at the end of the day. Um, but the idea that, you know, you don't need a quality based spirit for your cocktail, uh, should be absurd if you think about cooking, right? Of course, of course, the quality of the meat matters if you're if you're having a steak, right? Or even if you're having a hamburger, um, the, the quality of the materials is is paramount. And so, getting people to appreciate these spirits uh, in their best expressions for a lot of people requires a cocktail. And and you know, for better or worse, 
as far as the industry is is concerned, the main way you're going to survive in the United States is by being on a cocktail menu somewhere. And I think that a lot of people who get exposed to whether it's tequila or mezcal or or rum uh, through cocktails, many of them will then move on to say, "Huh, well, let me let me try that neat. You know, let me see what is what is the essence of what's in there when we get rid of the bitters, when we get rid, uh, you know, of of the sweet, when we get rid of the fruit, maybe, um, and see what's what's really at the core of that. Um, and and so I, I don't think cocktails are, are to be shied away from. Um, it, it's just in in the U.S. culture, it's the way that most people are, are going to be exposed to the spirits. And you also made a conscious choice to put process and information on the label to be transparent about how and where your product was made. Can you talk a little bit about um, how transparency is becoming, I don't want to say trendy, but uh, something that, you know, geeks want to know about? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, there. so there's supposed to be a certain inherent transparency in tequila um, and in mezcal with, so geeks, like we always throw out this word nom n-o-m and and by nom we're referring to the norma oficial mexicana the official mexican norm in this case on tequila or on mezcal so this is the set of rules and that, that govern the way these spirits are made and uh on a tequila bottle or on a bottle of certified mezcal you'll you'll see an identification number with with tequila it's going to say nom and it's going to have a four-digit number um and that number tells you something very specific. It tells you who's responsible for what's in that bottle. What what company, what bottler is responsible for what's in there. Now, once upon a time, years ago, we would go around saying, oh, well, that tells you who distilled it. That tells you who made it. Um, that's unfortunately, in my opinion, not necessarily the case uh, because licensed producers can buy and sell bulk tequila um, out of the view of the public under the purview of the CRT, but in a way that's... Um, overseen but not accessible to the consumer or to the general public so if if your gnome is you know four 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 uh and mine is seven 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 and i pick up a bottle that that you know is is don andy four 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 i may be assuming that you made that but you may have in fact bought that from me you may have bought the liquid from me um or you may have blended something you bought with from me with with your own juice or from something you bought from a neighbor who's a licensed producer um and so the importance of that is that if you're don andy four 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 and you're known for you know these artisanal processes and products um and i'm your your industrial neighbor up the street People might be getting my stuff, uh, which was made in a different way than what they think they, they should be getting from you. And so that, unfortunately, is happening increasingly in the industry. So these these small producers who are kind of the vanguard of, of, of craft in tequila um, are very much getting more into it. And a lot of this is taking the lead from mezcal. And a lot of this is taking the lead from consumer demand and industry demand on the on the um, on-premise side of specifying the way in which this was made, maybe where the agave came from. I mean, the the um, Valles Ancestral product gets down to the name the name of the the chief field workers who harvested the agave, right? So, so the idea there is to to really have a strong connection to to where this came from, and and in that case, you know, to to remind people that there are human beings behind this, yeah, and that there's and, labor and effort that goes into this. And I think that that that's something that. Um, I wanted to circle back to, you know, it's, you know, I've made, I've made the conscious choice to put 
all information on the label um, in terms of how it was made, how long it was cooked, what it was cooked in, how it was extracted, where the agave comes from, who made it, et cetera, et cetera, that there's no additives, the whole deal, um, all to to bring it back to the culture and to supporting a local community and to um, – you know, supporting the Hemidors and supporting these small villages. Um, can can we bring it back a little bit more to, you know, on the one hand, you get into it because you're passionate about the business, but it really started with the culture and it really is dependent on the people who are sort of, like you said, the vanguards of, um, of the industry. Yeah. And I think that's really important because I think sometimes the word sustainability tends to bring to mind, um, you know, ecological factors in, in a narrow sense of, of the land and the plants. Um, and, and that's all, of course, very important. But, you know, as human beings, it's, it's important to us because, because we live on the planet and, and our neighbors uh, live on the planet as well. And, and, you know, we should want people to, to have the best life possible that, that allows for others to have the best life possible as well. And so, uh, you know, for something to be sustainable, uh, people have to be able to do it in a way that allows them to live fully formed lives. And, you know, that means that, that, you know, wages need to be fair. That means that, uh, at, at times of agave glut, the farmers still have to have a way of selling their product or, or being taken care of in some other way. And, you know, that at times of, of agave shortage, you know, the tequileros may need to get a break uh, to, to make sure that they're, they're able to stay in business as well. And I, I think one thing that's easily lost here, you know, I think it's, it's easy to get focused on sort of a narrow consumerist, like, well, just support the good guys and this and that. But, you know, none of, none of this exists in, in isolation from the rest of society, both, you know, national and international. So uh, supporting policies that help the Mexican countryside be able to keep growing its own food, um, supporting policies that don't demonize immigrants to the United States and don't demonize refugees and don't keep, uh, you know, downward pressure on wages of people who come to the United States to make a living and are the backbone of our economy, as we're certainly seeing right now, um, that's all part and parcel in this and, and may, in fact, you know, it's probably more important than, than you know, picking the right brand and feeling bad about it. When, when I have people who, who come down who, you know, are big tequila aficionados, but you know, regardless of what their opinions on on immigration might be, uh, they generally have no real understanding of what it is that motivates people to leave their country, leave their home, leave their family and risk their lives to go make what we would consider very little money. Um, and when you tell people, well, minimum wage in Mexico, legal minimum wage is about $6 a day. Um, you know, even people who feel very compassionate and, and pro-immigrant, uh, generally don't know that, you know, they, they might just have sort of a, a knee-jerk compassion, which I think is fantastic, um, but they haven't really thought about the reality of what that means and and how hard it is to, to live on that. And that is all part of the environment in, in which this industry is situated. And so I think if, if we, you know, if we want to be good people, if we want to pat ourselves on the back about being good consumers, then it, it goes beyond just, just the choice of, of products we're buying as well. And it, it goes into policies and, you know, the, the types of policies and politicians that we support. And I think, you know, as it is an agricultural crop, there is a ton of emphasis and there there is a need to have um, sustainable practices on an environmental level to ensure that it um, continues in perpetuity. But, you know, at least I'm of the opinion, it has to start with the people first because, you know, you can't go in and say, well, we need to preserve X amount of crops 
for the hummingbirds or the pollinators or the bats, you know. Um, meanwhile, you know, a farmer might be shaking his head and, and having a hard time paying the bills. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and that's hard, you know, I'm not saying that there's easy answers to this or, or certainly not that, that I have them, but I do think it's worth sort of broadening our perspective and, and, and thinking about the way that seemingly unrelated decisions and policies actually affect these regions and people that, that we all claim to care about. And I also recognize, you know, right, um, some of these people who claim to care, um, like I'm in a couple of Facebook groups of like people that love agave or mezcal or whatever it may be, and they'll brag about, um, you know, how they found a smoking deal and something was on sale. And, you know, I, I think one of the best ways to support, um, you know, the, the smaller batch producers is to pay them an equitable wage and a fair wage for what it is that they're doing. Absolutely. And I think, you know, there's, there's, there's actually a, a bit of a way, and this is, this is going to be self-interested for me as well, but you know, there, there is kind of a way to have your cake and eat it too, which is, which is to come down here and, and meet the folks who are making the stuff. And this is true in tequila. It's even more true with mezcal. Um, you know, you can, that, that, $150 bottle, you know, you probably can get it cheaper direct from the source. And that's going to allow you to, to plow that savings into a plane ticket and hotels. And Hey, I know, I know a good guide as well. And those experiences are going to enrich not only your life, but they're going to enrich your tasting and, and sipping and drinking experience with, with what you're buying as well. You know, a lot of people, I think, misunderstand when when they see prices that they feel like are really really elevated, say on a mezcal, well, first of all, they would probably not flinch at that price for a scotch, which we have to question, you know, why that is. Is that some kind of cultural bias, uh, or is that simply just because the scotch categories existed for longer um, commercially? But regardless of that, a lot of people think, well, I know what, you know, people charge in their distilleries and that's an insane markup. Well, you know, that, that juice had to get to you, you know, it, it had to be bottled. It had to be labeled. It had to be shipped. It had to be imported. It had to be distributed. It had to be retailed. And a lot of the times, uh, a, the biggest chunk of that cut is going to the retailer and that's not to demonize the retailer either. You know, if, if you live in San Francisco or you live in New York or you live in Chicago, your, your nice high-end liquor store that takes care of you and curates their selection and comes down here and meets the producers and can talk to you about that, their rent is probably pretty high. And if they're bringing their staff down here, that's, that's an expense they're putting into the experience they're giving you. So I, I think, you know, we, we shouldn't diminish the value of any of people at any point in the supply chain, you know, and, and understanding where those costs come from, I think is really important. And I, I definitely agree with you that, if you're, we, you know, we all want a good deal, right? Nobody wants to, to just throw money away for no reason. But if your number one concern is that it should be cheap, then, then I think that you're, you're probably interested in this for the wrong reasons. Yeah. And, and, you know, to your, to your point, as demand increases, scale can't keep up with some of these, you know, specifically with Mezcal, um, with some of these expressions and varietals. They're, isn't enough of them. They take too long to grow. The price has to go up. And, you know, I think that that limited um, batch is is something really special. And if you're spending $110 or $150 um, on something that took 20 years to grow and weeks for somebody to, to harvest and produce, you know, when you have transparency and you know the story um, about not just how it was produced, but who made it and how long it took, 
um, I think that reframes the experience as a whole. Yeah, for sure. And and I think, you know, it's, it's also about recognizing that this is some of these things are always going to be that special bottle that you bring down for a special occasion. You know, um, you know, people don't have the same associ- the party association with, let's get a bottle of cognac and, you know, just take it out tonight. That's generally, that's generally not happening. And people have different cultural associations with that for, you know, for historical reasons. And I think tequila and certainly mezcal need to be considered as, as things that, you know, you're, you're sipping on for a reason and you're sipping on particular ones for particular reasons. Well, we're we're kind of nearing an hour. I feel like we can. <laughs> I feel like if we had uh, a bottle that we could taste, we could do this for yeah, another right. hour for sure. Yeah. Um, but I don't want to keep you too long, and maybe we could do a round two. Um, I'll get you some samples, and maybe we could do it yeah, over that or something. Great. But that'd be great, and hopefully one day in person. Yeah. Do you have other closing thoughts? You know, while we're on the topic of. Um, sort of the future of the industry as well as, you know, helping some of the smaller scale producers. Um, are there any closing thoughts that you do want to share about the agave spirits industry? Well, I think, you know, Andy, you're asking the right questions. And I think it's it's a good model for people listening to this to ask questions of of the brands, of the distributors, even of the retailers. Um, you know, the retailers have a hard job. They're, they're selling a bunch of different types of stuff. But but ask these questions, you know, and and, uh, you know, learn to learn to look for what sounds like just marketing and, and what seems real. And in this day and age, it's generally not hard to track down the producers themselves on social media and and go right to the source and and be your own judge. And then uh, when when we're all able to travel, uh, come on down to Mexico and, and see it up close and personal because there's there's not a better way to get an understanding of what this is really like. And so what's the best way for people to follow along with you and what you're doing right now? Uh, well, the the tours, you know, we're, the tours are on hold right now, but we're we're cautiously working towards having all the precautions in place to be able to uh, do at least private tours again in the fall or into the winter. Um, and that's experienceagave.com. Uh, people can contact us there or check out what the tours we do: tequila tours, mezcal tours, ricea tours. Um, me personally, I blog and do some writing and, and consulting and, and speaking uh, through my website. It's claytoncheck.com, but that's a pretty pretty hard to spell. So you can go to uh, agavision.com, agavision, A-G-A-V-I-S-I-O-N.com. And that's the best way to get to me personally. And then you're also on Instagram at Experience Agave. Experience Agave on Instagram uh, and Experience Agave on Facebook as well. And will we uh, hold our breaths for the phoenix to rise from the ashes with uh, Lakata or will it morph into a different form or what's your vision for um for well, the future I, I honestly don't know you know it's i'm i'm in the space right now i just got here as you mentioned this morning and i'm here to to take it all apart which which is certainly a a, <laughs> a heavy endeavor physically and emotionally um what i can say is lakata in this location is done um, and we do not have concrete plans for for Lakata to be resurrected at this moment, uh, but it's a existing business entity in Mexico, and we're gonna, you know, keep paying those fees and keep the brand alive, uh, and probably keep our eyes open mostly for opportunities to do more specialty products that people will be able to buy in Mexico. And uh, beyond that, maybe maybe uh, the cards will be in our favor, and someday there'll be another brick and mortar. But at this moment, I just don't know. Yeah, I mean, I the reposado that you guys produced was, you know, one of the finest I've ever had. Um, I haven't had a chance to have any of your blancos, um, but even a curated, uh, 
you know, small batch, like you said, real special edition releases just for Mexico only is, um, I mean, it'd be so special that that was such amazing tequila. Thank you. Yeah, that's that's probably the most likely thing um, in terms of you know being being manageable with with uh, overhead and whatnot. But uh, I will keep you posted for sure. All right, man. Well, um, thank you, and I, I do hope we do it again in round two. You know, we didn't get to a lot of the things that I know <laughs> that I have on my list. I went down the Cascoing rabbit hole pretty hard. Sorry. Yeah, but uh, let's let's get back to the culture and the humidors and fair wages and um, you know, there's so many other things that we could spend 45 minutes or an hour on that. Um, that really mattered to me, and I know you're passionate about it as well. So thank you for taking the time to Anytime, share. Anytime, Andy. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. I All right, brother. It. Thank you. Okay, take care. Well, come on, podcast. Mm-hmm. <laughs>